I wanted to be admired for, you know, my intellectual prowess. And I wanted to be skinny because I thought that would make me pretty. And all of those things made me feel valuable Mm -hmm. instead of understanding that I have intrinsic value because I'm here. Hello and welcome to What's Underneath, the podcast that will inspire self-acceptance through empowering you to embrace what's unrepeatable in you. I'm Lily Mandelbaum and sitting next to me is my mom, Elisa Goodkind. And we are Style Like You. Each week we bring you interviews with diverse nonconformists about their relationship to style, self-image, and identity. Being radically honest without shame and holding that honesty with compassion is self-acceptance. If you fall in love with our guests as much as we do, you can see them in their full self-expression on our YouTube channel and Instagram using the handle at StyleLikeYou. And if our stories open your eyes or are transformative on your own journey towards acceptance, please consider becoming a member of Style Like You on Patreon so that we can continue creating a world where everyone feels comfortable and safe in their skin. To support our work, head over to patreon.com slash you. Over the years, Chantal Lingerie has been a great supporter and believer in our movement for self-acceptance, and we are super grateful to them for sponsoring this episode. Family-owned and headquartered in Paris, Chantal Lingerie is committed to balancing style, quality, and function in every garment. Chantal Lingerie adapts to women's needs to provide the perfect fit from A to H cups in a variety of shapes from plunge to full coverage. Listeners of this podcast can take advantage of free shipping on any order by going to Chantel.com and using the coupon code STYLE at checkout. That's Chantel.com with the coupon code STYLE for free shipping. So mom. Hi Lils. How are you? Good. I'm like... Uh, can't wait to get into this conversation with Stacey London, who is a fashion stylist and a fashion consultant and an author and the former TV host of What Not to Wear. We've been, you know, blah, blah, blahing for uh, already about an hour about we, there's so many things that we want to talk about. So just can't wait. Oh, well, I'm so yeah. happy to be here, guys. And I'm huge admirers of your work. And um, I feel really honored that you're here. And I'm so excited to have this conversation. I feel like these are the conversations that I want to be having, Mm -hmm. um, which is a little bit different from reality television. How so? I was on What Not to Wear for 10 years. And while I really believe that show in terms of being an unscripted show um, did have a lot of merit, Mm -hmm. right? We really wanted people to see themselves differently because if you can see yourself differently, I think you can believe something different about yourself. And the great thing about style is it's so transformational that when you can see yourself in a new way, you know, people would go off after the show. They would get married. They would leave their bad jobs. They would leave awful, you know, spouses. And it was such an incredible thing to see. Those are the moments that I really believed in. Mm -hmm. What I found more and more sort of... um, restricting, I guess, is that it was a scripted format, right? So you knew at minute 16, we'd be giving the rules or at minute 18, you'd see us talking in a, you know, Mm. 360 degree mirror. And that format became very rigid. And what I found is that in a lot of ways, we started to impose kind of a universal style on people, rather than taking the time to really kind of take their style and let it blossom Mm -hmm. much more organically. Mm -hmm. Um, Because, you know, the idea was to do something radical and to do something that would um, sort of interest audiences, not just on the coast, but in Mm -hmm. the mid you know, mid states um, and the flyover states. And so it was a, it became for me a little bit antiseptic. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing that I, if I, if there was one thing that I could go back and change, I think it would be that. Mm-hmm. And that's also come with my evolution. When I left What Not to Wear, um, I think I've changed so dramatically that it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be something that I would want to go back to because I wouldn't have the creative freedom that I would want for clients or for, you know, people who are on the show, for Mm -hmm. the guests. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. And the first, I just want to respond to a couple of those things. First of all, through exploring authentic personal style, we have hit like every note of humanity. Of course. And, And every layer and degree 
of spirituality and psyche and struggle and all of these things. There's just so much inside of it. And it has changed us so deeply. We, We all get mushed into sort of a category of being social justice or something or like these other things, which we are that, but it is very definitely through style. Yeah. I Well, you know, I see style as a universal language, mm-hmm. right? It doesn't require any kind of communication in the sense that, you know, we're still working with prehistoric software here. We're in like this te- technological age where, you know, we see more images in 24 hours than our grandparents saw in their lifetime mm-hmm. and in a 24 hour news cycle. But what is true about our brains is that we make a judgment call about anything we see in three seconds. Mm -hmm. And that has to do with the fact that it's fight or flight, right? Is this person safe? Is this a saber-toothed tiger? What's happening here? And we forget how much we can use that to our advantage. Mm -hmm. We forget how much power there is in dressing the way that you want to be perceived by the world. I always used to say, look, women over 40 start to feel a little bit invisible, Mm -hmm. right? In in conventional society, I won't say that's always true. But, you know, they don't feel like they're as attractive. They don't feel like they have as many options, you know, especially somebody like me who didn't check any boxes, right? I mean, I didn't get married. I didn't have kids. I, I haven't had a real job in a really long time. Mm-hmm. Um, when you don't check the boxes, I think that in an interesting way, it becomes harder to navigate like the way that people perceive you. So when somebody asks me what I do, like I, you know, I could be really obnoxious and be like, I'm a multi-hyphenate, but I just say I'm retired because I don't want to tell anybody. I don't want to talk about it. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? That's like a longer conversation. <laughs> but the bigger thing for me is that I want women Certainly, that traditional idea of the older woman is 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 radically being transformed, and I want to be a part of that. Mm-hmm. I want to be a part. It's really of exciting. The idea that women over forty don't need to feel like they're invisible, mm-hmm. don't need to feel like their attraction is waning. I find this, you know, this new trend, and I'm just gonna blame it on the Kardashians, whether that's fair or not. Um, it's fair, right? The idea of being famous to be famous. The idea of Oh yeah, I have a. I make a lip kit instead of actually, you know, having your whole face shot up with with fillers and Botox. And I want women mm-hmm. to recognize that aging is not a curse. It is. We are so blessed, and I don't know why. You know, it's it's discomforting. I think I, I see my body changes. I see my face. I look different than I did. But why why can't I embrace that? Why can't I love that? Mm-hmm. And part of it is that I think in this society with social media and everybody sort of you know envying other people, we forget they're using a filter. They've altered that picture. You know they they've got a ton of fillers and mm-hmm. and we are losing sight of what it means to be human. Mm-hmm. And for women over forty, particularly, um, I think that. You know, we have to do something about the visibility, but we also need to do something about the fact that those women are starting to feel useless. We're going to circle back to all of this, but before we do, can we ask you what your style says about you? Yeah, I mean, I think my style says don't fuck with me. I used to say things like, I'm kind of traditional with a twist, but... I think, you know, <laughs> one of my evolutions came out in an article that I wrote for Refinery29. And the title that they called it was um, how I moved on from my what not to wear style. But I called it style by fire. And it was because I really felt like I needed to wake up to the fact that I'm not the girl I was when I started on what not to wear at 32. I'd already been a fashion editor for, you know, 13 years. It wasn't like I was unaware. But when I worked in magazines and editorial, I still felt there was a very prescribed look for to be a fashion editor. And when I got to What Not to Wear, I was very concerned about being taken seriously as an authority, right? Mm-hmm. So I was very strict about the way that I wore clothing. And the funny thing was, this, if you look at the second season of What Not to Wear, I did not look great because it was very different to go from being behind the camera to in front of it. It was Mm -hmm. bizarre. There is an outfit somewhere that was head to toe lime green that I don't know how anybody thought this was a good idea. I mean, I truly. So, you know, there was that. But what it became for me was pencil skirts and floral tops. And, you know, that there was always this look or short dresses and very body conscious. And when I left What Not to Wear, and even when I wasn't shooting... You know, that was only a persona. It was only part of me. The rest of me was like, yeah, I want leather and I I wear suits. And why am I not expressing that more Mm -hmm. in a public way? 
And what I realized was that I had this beautiful, beautiful bubblegum pink mini dress from Love Shack Fancy um, that I put on at, I don't know, 48. And I started laughing. I was like, when did, when did I actually think I was going to wear this now? And I immediately gave it to my 32-year-old sister, right, who looks fantastic in it, and I want her to love it and enjoy it. But what it didn't, what never occurred to me sort of specifically was the idea that my style was necessarily going to change as I got older. Not because I think it's inappropriate for me to wear the short, short skirts anymore. I used to think that's a rule, okay? Over 35, don't do that. I don't believe in those rules anymore. I don't believe in rules. But I want, I did not feel comfortable. I did not feel comfortable trying to um, see myself in a, in a kind of sexier way. And I have sort of moved on to the suiting, the idea that I can be covered and feel powerful instead of beautiful, which I consider powerful to be beautiful. But beautiful was the idea that, that it had to look a certain way, that I had to prescribe mm-hmm. to the beauty standard set by society instead of feeling beautiful from the inside out by actually acknowledging my age, acknowledging my experience, and acknowledging that I wanted to wear female designers and startups and, and, and women that I could help support and lift up. Mm-hmm. And that was a, a pivotal moment for me because it made me realize how much I was evolving as a woman. I really relate to that because I, as time has gone on, I am so much more comfortable in myself, in my body, I feel inside so much better about myself than I used to then. And I, and I, and I also feel as sexual or, you know, or sensual wearing what I completely feel to wear is that, that is totally, um, in sync with my emotional imagination, whatever is happening at that moment Mm. is the thing that actually makes me feel totally attractive. I think the one thing definitely that is true about aging is that you have to necessarily become more comfortable with who you are. And there's a lot more insecurity when you're young. You just don't have enough life experience. And that is something we really undervalue. So when you talk about this idea of like your almost your style coming from a truly spiritual accepting place of of yourself, the love you have for yourself, a lot of kids can't do that. And that is the one thing that you that mm-hmm. is so precious about mm-hmm. life experience. The more you have it, the more I think that sense which, can develop. Which is why it's so important for older people to not be invisible. Exactly. Because, because they are they have so much to impart in terms of, um, you know, so we live in such an age of society right now that makes you heart, you know, terrified of aging so that you buy all the stupid shit that they're selling. What, what are some, um, what do you think are some assumptions that people make about you either based on your style or on how you appear and, or based on like your more public like persona? Um, well, it's funny cause I think there's a real dichotomy mm-hmm. and I think there is a real dichotomy in me because of my own development. Mm-hmm. Um, I have had a lot of, a lot of body issues my whole life. Mm-hmm. I have been, um, I'm about five, seven and I have been 89 pounds and I've also been 180 pounds mm-hmm. and I have always had sort of trouble with that dysmorphia. The way I used to express that insecurity was by being bitchy and being very cut off and very cold. When um, was that? When was that? I mean, I, I would think I was an editor at 26. So mm-hmm. I think that that, you know, while I, I mean, I could be fun and happy, but I felt like I was very closed off mm-hmm. because I didn't want to admit to the insecurity. I didn't know it was okay not to know everything. I, I thought I was supposed to act like I, I knew everything and that I was great at my job and that I didn't doubt myself. And I, I thought that was weakness mm-hmm. instead of, you know, vulnerability being such a strength. And again, this is something that's happened to me over time. And I'm grateful for the technological advances because you know, the good side of social media is that you can connect and talk about the things that people never talked about before. Mm-hmm. Um, so I didn't realize that I was coming off as, as angry or grumpy or bitchy. All I was thinking about was how self-conscious I was. Everybody's mm-hmm. looking at me and they don't, I, I, I'm, I'm, I look terrible. I don't have any style. I don't know why I'm a fraud. I'm an imposter, right? Mm-hmm. What happened over time and what certainly happened on What Not to Wear was that it was one thing to joke around about how awful somebody's style was, you know, and make fun in a, in a lighthearted way, break them down to build them back up. 
But I had so much compassion for the women who, wherever they were in their life, were struggling with their own identity. Mm -hmm. And to have that kind of compassion for those women necessarily taught me to have compassion for myself. Mm -hmm. And that sort of took some of the pressure off for me. Mm -hmm. And it made me a lot more aware of my behavior and my actions towards others, but also that I wanted to be kinder, that I didn't want the mask of thinking that I had to know everything and you know being sort of a know-it-all. Um, that didn't serve me because mm-hmm. I wasn't opening myself up, not only to the connection that vulnerability brings, but also to learn from other people. So I think that um, a lot of, in the few, the beginning years of what not to wear, I think I came off and I certainly got it in the public for being really bitchy, mm-hmm. being like sort of, I mean, it was also that I had black hair and a gray streak and I was kind of mortician. It was easy to be like, she's the mean one. But I really do think that that changed over time. What, how is it for you to like look back and know that like you've changed so much and the person you are now maybe wouldn't come across the way that you did then, but like that, that's what people might still think. Like, is that a struggle? Way, that misunderstanding? It's a real struggle because, you know, I've also gotten a lot more involved with politics um, since mm-hmm. our current administration began because I don't want to see our country collapse. <laughs> and I have never felt so strongly. Mm-hmm. And I, in, on social media, when I started talking about things like this, when I started talking about, you know, all of my problems with what's going on in the world, people were like, screw you. We didn't come to your site. We didn't come to your, you know, Twitter account or your Instagram to see you talk about politics. Give us fashion tips. But can you give a little bit more detail about your experience, like being a fashion editor? Can we hear a little bit about what your struggle was? And oh, like, yes, yeah, and and um, that p- particular experience, you know, like We're working at details Vogue and, and the yeah. evolution of that experience and like personal moments. Sure. And, yeah. Um. Okay. So first, I'm just gonna, you know shameless self-promotion I did write a book called The Truth About Style which Mm -hmm. is kind of a a pseudo memoir told through nine women that I chose to make over Mm -hmm. and basically every obstacle sort of psychological obstacle that they had was something that I have encountered so a lot of people who know a little bit about me you know either through the book or through social media or whatever um, I've always been body dysmorphic I, I was always about 10 pounds overweight all through high school and college and my senior year of college, I decided that I should really lose some weight if I wanted to work at Vogue, right? If I wanted to be in fashion, I thought I should look a certain way. And I thought I would take three months and I would lose 10 pounds. And I lost 60. What? So 10 pounds, like how did you decide that that was like over, like you were 10 pounds overweight? Was that like a doctor kind no, of thing? Or that was like no, how it you... Was, it, I don't even know. I don't know why mm-hmm. it's that number. <clears throat> I mean, actually, it was probably closer to 20, to be right. honest. But it was something that I felt was manageable. And it was something that I felt, well, I don't know. I'd never actually tried to lose that weight. I just didn't realize that, you know, at that age, my metabolism was fast. I didn't realize that by really curtailing my diet to nothing, I mean, it was about 400 calories a day, um, that I would lose so much weight. And so do you actually, looking back, do you actually feel like you were overweight or do you just feel like you just were not the weight that you wanted to look to be like right. the, the I don't girl? think anybody would say, Oh, look at that mm-hmm. woman. She, you know, she really needs to lose some weight or she's going to die. I was totally healthy. And the fact is, by the time I got to 89 pounds, I was not healthy. My skin was gray. My hair was falling out. I mean... So I, that's the 60 pounds got you to 89 yeah. pounds. So and how so, wait, so, so that happened? Like, can we hear details of that ex- journey? Like, what? how long did that take? And like, what... Three time? months. Three months and you were eating 400 calories a day. So like, what were you eating? <laughs> I was eating um, Dannon uh, Light Yo- or Dannon Fat-Free Vanilla Yogurt, two rice cakes, an apple, and a small tin of tuna. And you're like 18 or something? No, I was 20. 20. And you knew you wanted to work in fashion? I knew I wanted to work in fashion since I was 16. And I do talk about the fact that I have a ton of autoimmune diseases. Mm -hmm. And the first one I got was when I was four. Mm -hmm. And I had psoriasis. But then, and all of this was not known at the time because this was the 70s, um, I got strep throat, like, I don't know, something like 18 times in one year. Mm. I was constantly on... um, antibiotics and they put me on antibiotics for three years I took penicillin every day which totally destroyed my immune system Um, and at 11 after having all of this strep and antibiotics sort of no longer having potency I woke up basically one day covered from my neck down in scales just everywhere and it took 
two and a half years to find a solution. When we did, it was a very strong topical steroid that I was slathering all over my body. And while my psoriasis went away, um, I started using so much of it that it was thinning my skin to the point where I have scars where my skin split. It just started to split like a zipper. And it wasn't all the way to you know, the bottom of my skin layers. So it looks almost like somebody carved scars into my body. I didn't know that steroids could do that. You know, there were a lot of things that right. I didn't understand about medicine. But that feeling of psoriasis can't kill you, but sometimes you wish that it would. Mm-hmm. Because it is such um, an alienating disease. I was so sick at one point that uh, I skipped school to go stay with my aunt, my great aunt in Florida. Do you so feel I, sick and also? Do you feel sick or is it just uh, outside? Not No, not with psoriasis. It's the outside. It, it definitely has mental anguish attached yeah. to it. But um, I went down to Florida. And this is when you're like 11, you said? It? So 11. it's like right at like the years where It's you're... also when I got my gray streak. Oh. Interestingly. Really? Yeah. Didn't, I wasn't born with it. I got it around 11 or 12. So... Um, I went to Florida to be in the sun and salt water, both of which were considered very good for psoriasis at the time. And I spent most of the time at my great aunt's house because she had a pool and nobody had to see me. Mm. But my dad came down to visit me and he was like, it's fine. We're going to go to the beach. You're going to wear your bathing suit. It's going to be fine. And we got to the beach and within five minutes, one woman looked at me and then looked at my father and said, I'm so sorry. What's wrong with her? And I felt my dad feel shame. I thought that he was so embarrassed. I was devastated that I had put him in that position. Now, I never asked him after that how he was feeling. I think maybe he was angrier than he was ashamed. Mm-hmm. But as a little kid, that's what I read it as. And that you internalized it. Oh, it, it destroyed me. And I think that my attraction to fashion as an industry was basically because Fashion is an industry built on insecurity. Mm-hmm. What you're not, what you have to buy to be something you're not, right? Mm-hmm. That's all I wanted. I wanted to be cool. I wanted to be in. I wanted to look great. I wanted to have mm. all of these fabulous things. Accepted. Accepted yeah. and admired for nothing to do with who I was. And so I cover up like... Well, I finally got rid of it. I had, I, I had my tonsils. I had chronic strep my entire life. I, I mean, I what was, was that from? fed antibiotics. I have no idea. Fed antibiotics my whole life, never got rid of the strep. They finally took my tonsils out. Didn't have any psoriasis at all, at all, um, until this past year. I got, and, and I don't mean a lot. I just got a few spots, but because of the stress. The last three years have been mm. incredibly stressful. And so I think, you know, autoimmune d- diseases are, um, they're made worse by stress. So mm. they're, you know aggravated by stress so during the psoriasis phase like so this is before the like you were in your 20 and you're losing weight but like were you feeling like you couldn't like not accepted in school or you bullied were you like were yeah you, I was how bullied was, I, mean, I, I missed almost all of sixth grade mm-hmm. I was given I want and I wanted to I would even when my skin started to get a little bit more under control I would get within 100 feet of the school and I would have a massive panic attack at the age of 12 I Ugh. I would be unable to function because I was so afraid mm-hmm. of what would happen that day um I did it was great. And I, you know, I have to say they let me take an English test and a math test, just comprehensive at the end of the year. And then I left the school Mm -hmm. because I needed a fresh start. Mm -hmm. And did it go away and you had a fresh start? Yes. But those scars, literally, you know, the ones I have on my body and figuratively, Mm -hmm. uh, didn't go away. And so then it became about my body, right? Then it was still about my body. So the weight thing and the body dysmorphia mm-hmm. wasn't actually that surprising looking back on it, mm-hmm. right? And that need for it's acceptance. PTSD. Absolutely, absolutely. And I used to make deals with God. I used to say, if you would clear up my skin, I'll gain 60 pounds. <laughs> so be careful what you wish for. Mm-hmm. But I used to say, like, you can have all my teeth because I just, I would have given anything to feel like a normal child. Mm. And I never did. And when I became anorexic, it really took me a long time to understand that that's what was happening. I mean, my friends were completely freaking out. And I was like, what? what? Were you at, in New York? Where were you? I was at uh, college. 
My senior year of college. Okay. And, you know, I was writing a thesis that I'd bit off way more than I could choose, so I was stressed about that. I had a year to write it. I, you know, had set this goal for myself that it needed to be published as an undergraduate thesis <laughs> in some, like, major publication. I don't know what I was thinking. <laughs> um, so I, and I still do that. I think I put a lot of pressure on myself. Mm -hmm. um, it comes from having overachieving sisters and parents. Mm -hmm. And you Are know, you the oldest? I am. I'm the oldest I'm of the three oldest girls. Too. Oh, are you? Okay. I can feel that. <laughs> I um, feel that in you too. Yeah. 15 years on television after not being on television, I got very, you know, concerned about my appearance. And even if you look at all the seasons of What Not to Wear, you will see my weight goes up, it goes down, it goes up, it goes down. It, it, it was never consistent because... Food, for me, has always been the issue. Mm -hmm. I'm not a drug addict. I'm probably more of a food addict. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it was either anorexia or compulsive overeating. Mm -hmm. I've never been bulimic. I, bulimia is sort of a different kind of disorder. Anorexia and compulsive overeating are, you know, it's restriction or mm -hmm. gluttony. And I think that they're two sides of the same coin. And for me, that, that was what wound up happening. So after being... 90 pounds. Uh, I graduated college, which, you know, I was Phi Beta Kappa in uh, philosophy, German literature, and psychology. And it was an independent major that I had created. Mm -hmm. It was to talk about philosophy and literature at the turn of the century, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> I mean, whatever. Anyway, it was about <laughs> self. It was really about the concept of self, which is something I've always been interested in. Mm -hmm. um, but I remember signing the Phi Beta Kappa book at that point, I was like 103 pounds. Like, I remember all of this. So you were still losing weight to get to 89? No, I was on gaining? my way back up. Okay. Um, it, 89 pounds is kind of hard to maintain. I'm not yeah. going to lie. Yeah. Um, so I was about 103. And I was wearing this kind of um, brown knit dress, you know, that kind of came to my knee. It had a V-neck, but it had gold spark like thread woven in it. So it was kind of sparkly. And I remember thinking my mom and my dad were there. I could only invite two people to the Phi Beta Kappa ceremony. So I couldn't invite my stepmother or my sisters, just my mom and my dad. And I bent over to sign the book. And I remember thinking, I am shining in every way that I could possibly shine. I don't know that I will ever feel like this kind of radiance again. Mm -hmm. And for a long time, I didn't think it was possible at all. Why in that moment? It was everything that I had wanted. I wanted to graduate with a 3.9 GPA, which is what I did. I wanted to be admired for, you know, my intellectual prowess. And I wanted to be skinny because I thought that would make me pretty. And all of those things made me feel valuable mm -hmm. instead of understanding that I have intrinsic value because I'm here. Mm -hmm. Right. Thank you again to Chantelle Lagerie for sponsoring this episode. We love Chantelle's belief that beauty and confidence don't have to come at the cost of your comfort. And that when you feel comfortable, your inner confidence and style will shine through. Chantelle Soft Stretch is a great example of this with lightweight, breathable, 360-degree adaptable stretch. Available in two one-size range bottoms, extra small to extra large, and 1X to 4X. Find lingerie that inspires and reflects the inner you and get free shipping on any order by going to Chantelle.com and using the coupon code STYLE at checkout. That's Chantel.com with the coupon code STYLE for free shipping. You lost, you were 89 pounds and you were slowly gaining weight and then you entered the fashion industry? Or like no, what? then I got double pneumonia. I okay. should say that when I was 100, around 103, I interviewed um, at Condé Nast and um, the woman in HR was lovely and she had also gone to Vassar. So mm -hmm. we had a connection sort of right there. She said, I have a job for you. Um, it's at Vogue. I'd like to offer it to you. And I said, great. You know, but that was in February before I graduated. When I graduated. And I, you're 100 pounds-ish. Right. And are you feeling like, are you tired? Are you? Um, I was exhausted. And like, I was in, it was such a dark place mm -hmm. to be so hungry and not eat mm -hmm. to the point where I couldn't feel hunger anymore. Mm -hmm. And I just felt this deep shame and fear that if I went outside, people would make me drink or make me eat something. So I was very alienated from my friends. I was writing my thesis and in the margins, if you looked at my drafts, I was counting calories. You really do become a prisoner of your mind. What, and it's, what, it's what an about like with romantic relations? Like did, did 
Did no, you feel it, you know, like here's the ironic were, thing. You were more attractive, right? Or I thought, oh my god, you know, all the boys are gonna think I'm so hot, you know, mm-hmm. that type of thing. I remember there was this one boy I had a huge crush on, and he's, you know, I thought that maybe we'd get together. I was kind of flirting with him, you know. Mm-hmm. Here I am, like ninety pounds, and he was like, "Stacy, just cut it out." Like, I would not get with you if my life depended on it. I would lie on top of you, and your bones would break. And I was like, "Oh, so." Not such a good look. Right. Right. I mean, all the things that we think we understand mm-hmm. about ourselves, or we think that we're going to get the attention for this, that, and the other thing. We're not always right. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we are drastically wrong. Mm-hmm. Why, why the over, why do you think you are so intensely hard on yourself and overachieving? Oh my God. Because I come from overachieving parents. I mean, I come from crazy overachievement and I really do think that that was instilled in me in a very young age, not explicitly, but a funny example is when I was six years old, I had an IQ test done. And whatever that number was, my parents were like, oh my God, she's a genius, right? But of course I was a genius because they wouldn't have had a child who wasn't a genius. So whatever that number was really made no difference. They would have figured out a way to, to make, make it genius, genius, right? right? Because that's what they came from. That's what they understood about themselves. Of course, our daughter is a genius. And that's a high expectation to put on a six-year-old. Mm-hmm. So I've, I've always kind of grown up with that feeling, that feeling that I'm never quite doing enough. So I back to Vogue. Yeah. I go on my senior year, you know, graduation trip from college. My parents let me go to London for a month because I'd spent my junior year there and I loved so many friends and I just wanted to get back to them. And I came home with double pneumonia, Mm. coughing, 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 getting sicker and sicker. And then all of a sudden I just couldn't stop eating, right? It was getting so bad because I just felt I felt sick. I didn't know what was going on. Do you think it's partially because of how skinny you and under... Oh, a thousand percent. Um, Wound up in the hospital. And basically, it was like either you eat or you can't go. And You can't go to... You can't leave the hospital. Oh. Oh, AKA, you can't start your job. So they were already holding a position for me. But then after I came back from London and I was sick, I was like, look, it's July... I don't think I can start until September. Between the time that I graduated, because I'd already been gaining weight, Mm -hmm. by the time I got to Vogue, I was 140. You gained back 50 of the 60 pounds. Yes, I mean, slowly. I would say it was like the last 40. Yeah. But in the first year that I was at Vogue, I gained another 40. So So imagine going from 89, 90 pounds when you interview for Vogue then becoming 180 pounds. Thank God I was there when grunge grunge came in because I could wear these like Mother Earth skirts and I would look at what was in style and I would go and have a tailor make things for me out of fabric that I would buy so that I could at least look a little bit like what all the other Vogue girls looked like. And so what did the other Vogue girls look like? They were all tall and skinny, but it was more about what they were wearing, right? There was a point where bell bottoms came back. Moschino did this incredible collection and everybody was wearing these black bell bottoms and I could never fit into Moschino, not even at the biggest size. So I made pants that looked like that. You were like at the when you were there in the it was in the, in the nineties. Uh, ninety ninety one to ninety. It was kind of like the fast highway to like statusy designer. Oh, a thousand percent. It was like the designer bag, like when it was all really on steroids, was like coming. I right? mean, I really felt like that really happened all through the nineties, right? To be in fashion then was really to see a huge change. And I left Vogue to go. Um, I was the assistant to three editors at Vogue, but when I left Vogue, I became the assistant to the fashion. Uh, Uh, director who came in, um, who was this fabulous, stylish English woman who asked my opinion about outfits or would say, why don't you style some for this story? And I, I mean, at Vogue, you know, you weren't seen or heard or anything. Um, And here was this incredibly stylish woman asking my opinion, even though I was 180 pounds, even though I didn't necessarily look like the person who should be in fashion. And like, granted, I did feel like this token kind of, um, you know, uh, unique body type to be working at Vogue. But to their credit, nobody ever said to me, you need to lose weight. Um, But I I worked three times as hard because I, I felt like I had to compensate for the way that I looked. And the more that I worked at Mademoiselle with this woman, Debbie Mason, the more confident she made me, not about the way that I looked, but my ability to style, my ability to understand styling. 
And over the course of my time there, I, I mean, the first week I left Vogue, I lost seven pounds. Didn't try. I just, the pressure, the exhaustion, all of that just wasn't there anymore. And slowly but surely, I kind of got to my average normal set weight. You know, it just took me a while not to be in a stressful environment. And when I went to Mademoiselle, uh, I left when Gabby Tuppelt Gabby Tup was the editor-in-chief. and I used to work with her in the 80s when she was... Yeah, yeah I mean, she, she was a fixture. When that ma- version of Mademoiselle folded, I left. And I went freelance. And I uh, worked with, a, I mean, basically every major stylist that you can think of. And at some point, I was like, either I'm going to be the world's best assistant and I'm going to get this amount of money, I'm going to demand it, yearly, this is my salary, or I'm going to go out on my own. I'm going to try this for real. And for six months, I did not take any assisting jobs. My dad was kind enough to help me with my rent Mm -hmm. until people started asking me if I would do styling jobs. And that's how it started. And I was freelancing. And then I got a phone call from a friend who told me that his sister had just been made the fashion director at this new Mademoiselle. um, And she was looking for a fashion editor to replace her. And so at 26, I went back to Mademoiselle as an editor, and I was there until I got fired at 30 when a new editor-in-chief came in. I highly recommend being fired. If you haven't been, you should go ahead and get fired. Why is that? (laughs) Because I stayed at Mademoiselle two years too long. I let myself get lazy in the sense that I was like, oh, I have health insurance. Oh, I get to take cars home late at night. But I wasn't feeling inspired. And I didn't listen to my instinct until somebody basically was like, you got to go. And now I'm so grateful for that because it woke me back up. I think we, we get lulled into laziness and we think this is good enough or this looks impressive on paper. We don't, I don't need to do more. Right. And the comfort. Right. There's a comfort yeah. level instead of pushing yourself. Sometimes you need somebody to push you out in order to get back up. And I felt very strongly about that. I was aimless for a year. I styled. I did freelance, but I knew I didn't want to. I used to draw clothes from my childhood that I thought I would want to make as an adult, right? Um, like the perfect raincoat. And, you know, my, I had this like tweed cape when I was a kid that I was like, I'm going to bring that back for grownups just to entertain myself. I was like constantly doing things like that. And then um, I got a phone call from my agent saying, do you would you go in and, and talk to these people about this show? Um, they're looking for somebody who has editorial experience, who has um, worked with celebrities. I've done a lot of celebrity covers, who has worked with real people, which I did for like commercials. I, that's how I started styling men and kids and who can talk a lot without a script. <laughs> and um, I definitely, you know, follow, it definitely met those qualifications. And that was the start. I did not realize that my whole life was going to take this turn. Um, And it is part of the reason I think, you know, burnout is real. And I definitely think that after 10 years, I mean, I was doing What Not to Wear, Access Hollywood, The Today Show, Woolite, um, Dr. Scholl's, Lee Jeans, and Pantene. And I was killing myself because I would do three of those things in one day. I would have to like, you know, do the Today Show, get there at 6 a.m. for an 8.09 segment. I would go to What Not To Wear and then I'd shoot something for Access Hollywood at night or I'd go do a Pantene commercial all day. I did commercials for Pantene for three and a half years and Woolite and Dr. Schultz and Lee. Print campaigns and commercial campaigns. Um, And so there was a point like at the very height of my career where, you know, there was a really good chance if you just turned on your television, I would be on it. Wow. And the funny thing about it was I was more insecure then than I ever was before in my life. How did that manifest itself? I just was anxious all the time. And I had real social anxiety about like being around other people. Which is ironic because you're just like in front of people all the time. All the time. But that's very different. That Being in front of a camera for me is very easy. That feels Mm -hmm. very impersonal. Whereas having somebody see me on the street and go, love your hair. You know, I mean, the only kind, the only rider in my contract was that they couldn't dye the gray. They couldn't dye the streak. But so you, you know, were secure about that. That I w- well, that to me is part of me. Yeah. Even when I was in my twenties, people it's your would be signature. like, "Right." People would say, "You look old." I was like, "How can one shut up?" But two, 
I mean, <laughs> I don't associate my streak or, or gray hair with old. Mm-hmm. I associate it with it showing up when it showed up and it's a part of me. Mm-hmm. It's like, I didn't get a nose job. I have a big nose. I don't, I mean, you know, my baby sister, I'm 17 years older than her. I love to tell this story when she was a baby. The first thing she sucked on was my nose because it was right there in front of her. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess I could have gone for like a waspy ski slope nose, but why? I mean, I am who I am. So at the same time, it's funny. It's sort of like, you know, that, that same coin, two different sides. There's part of me that's very confident about right. who I am. And the other part of me that's constantly insecure. Well, I mean, I think that that's, that duality exists for everybody. And I think that's a really important point to make and something really great to air out because I think there is no sort of what is secure. Right. Right. So during the what not to wear phase, like what was going on with your relationship to food and eating and body? Like, cause you were saying, so you were secure with like your hair and like certain things you were secure about. And obviously your personality, you you were being honored and acknowledged and seen for your talents, which must've been an amazing. Oh, it was amazing. So gratifying. I mean, you know, look, I don't think that there's anybody in the universe who doesn't want some kind of validation. Um, And it comes Mm -hmm. in different ways at different times in your life. But at that moment for me, I, I had never in my wildest dreams imagined that I could have something like that. I mean, you, like were, that. you mm-hmm. were shrinking away to nothing. Right. And then suddenly here you are, this like, like the opposite. Well, like that, just, that's the really interesting thing. And I did, I, I think I wrote about this for Mademoiselle maybe, but the smaller I got, the bigger I felt. In, in what I mean by that is not in size, the more I was seen. The more I started to disappear, the more people would be like, hold doors for me or ask me out or do things that when I was heavier... I noticed completely went away. Nobody held doors for me. Mm-hmm. Nobody did anything that felt like random kindness. And I thought, I'm more invisible the bigger I am. And it took me a long time hmm. to really radically understand that neither of those two looks or, or being, you know, define me. Mm-hmm. Neither one of them. And I still struggle um, with my weight. I, as I said, when I get down or when I am really struggling, food is my, food is my drug of choice. Mm -hmm. And the last three years have been incredibly hard for me. Why? Why? Um, I had to have spine surgery in 2016, Mm -hmm. um, which took 18 months to recover from and was agonizing. Wow. What happened? Well, it was congenital. Mm -hmm. The bottom of my spine basically just started to collapse and we had to put in titanium and my discs were crumbling and it turns out that it was auto-fusing in certain places and where it wasn't, the vertebrae were kind of loose and one was sort of on its side almost perforating my spinal cord. Mm -hmm. I mean, I could have been paralyzed. And the surgery was an insane amount of time and I am so lucky that it was a success. Some people have to have this surgery over and over and over again. But I did not realize how hard it was going to be for me um, to recover. (laughs) Because as I recovered, I started to feel, I remember the first time I went in to see an x-ray of what was in my spine. It looked barbaric. I mean, for such a sophisticated surgery, it looked barbaric. And I started to get this weird feeling. I have so much alien material in my body. Mm -hmm. And it started to feel like it was eating me alive. Mm -hmm. And I did not understand that that feeling, that anxiety, that sadness that it was producing was depression. And I didn't know until I did some research that heart, brain, and spine surgeries can trigger depression because they all basically keep the body alive. I was out of commission for a while. And then even when I wasn't out of commission, I had to wear back braces for so long. Mm-hmm. It, I mean, one, my first one was like a jet pack and I just couldn't hide it. I just mm-hmm. had to put it over things. Um, I had four and they got, you know, exponentially littler as time went on. I begged my uh, surgeon to let me go to physical therapy early. Mm-hmm. I was like, I am never going to take my body for granted again. I got so strong. I was like, I'm going to support my back. I'm going to have a great core. I'm going to do all of this stuff. And then my dad got sick. Mm. And instead of being able to recognize that to take care of him and to be helpful to him, I needed to take care of myself. I just stopped taking care of myself. Mm-hmm. And I'm just now getting back into building up strength again and trying to gain muscle. And 
but I was just, I, I was decimated. My dad got sick in March and he died in November. He had a heart disease called amyloidosis, which there are two kinds. There's genetic and then there's something called the wild type, which is acquired. Nobody knows how it's acquired, but that's what he had. He didn't meet any of the qualifications for the people who normally get it, but he did. And he was diagnosed five or six years ago. And they told him, you know, he was like, you can't be right. I feel fine. Everything is fine. You know, they were like, look, you're going to be fine until you don't feel fine. You're going to feel like you fell off a cliff, which I'm, I'm quoting oh the doctor who said, you know, you're not going to be able to walk across the street without having to stop. And Whoa. I think for a long time, we as a family kind of stuck our heads in the sand and thought, this is going to go away. My dad's going to be fine. Mm-hmm. You know, he was so scared by that diagnosis that he kind of didn't face it. But to be honest, that doctor was exactly right. Mm-hmm. And when when he went downhill, it was it was radical. It was watching somebody disappear in front of me. Mm-hmm. And I love my dad. So it was the only way that I can describe it is that I've never felt more like a grown-up having to take care of my fa- of my parents, right? Mm-hmm. You flip that dy- dynamic. I mean, my dad needed me to be the adult when he was really sick. And yet I've never felt more like a lost child in the supermarket. And there is no reality for me in which my father hasn't existed. And that is, it's just mind blowing. It's mind blowing to me that I can't, I can't talk to him. This was a man who called me every day of my entire life. Mm. My parents got divorced when I was four and he never let me forget that he was there Mm. every day. From four You're lucky. to 49. You're lucky. Very lucky, which is the only way that I can be grateful for the pain that I feel now. Because my pain is so deep and so um, visceral because my love for him was. He was a very special person. I feel so blessed to have had a parent like that. But you're never ready to, to say goodbye. I, he was sick, and I, I still thought he was going to last longer than he did how have you like dealt with like mourning and grief like how um two pounds of caramel m&ms every day for six weeks (laughs) and that is when I started to uh gain weight you know in a way that uh makes me uncomfortable but I also was like you have got to give yourself a break Mm -hmm. it has been a rough road Mm -hmm. it was a rough road with spine surgery it was a rough road with a breakup that took place in the middle of it, it was a rough road when a, a very dear old friend committed suicide and then my dad was sick. I mm-hmm. mean, it's been a lot. There is nothing linear about grief. There is nothing mm-hmm. linear about it. And I am constantly surprised by the kind of emotions that I have associated with it. I don't cry when I think it's the worst moment. And yet I'll cry because I see his handwriting. Or I'll cry because he even thinking about turning 50 and the idea that he won't be here to see it is devastating to me. And then there are times where I'm just grateful. I'm calm, I'm cool, I'm collected. I believe I have this peace because he's already inside of me and I'm so grateful for that. What do you think is the biggest risk you've ever taken? What not to wear? Going from uh, editorial to television. Because when I did, fashion was still in that stage of being very judgmental and very elitist. Television was looked down on as such uh, an inferior medium. That's really fascinating. And three to five years later, every editor I knew wanted my job. We really, as a society, have gone from editorial being king to television to digital. Mm -hmm. And being good at one platform yeah. doesn't mean you're good at all of them. Mm-hmm. And it's really interesting to see people kind of go back and forth. I have a really hard time with social media. I don't want to be on it all the time. I've, I've been on it so mm-hmm. much less since my dad passed away. I don't feel like mm. sharing everything. I don't want to talk to everybody. But if I want to succeed on that platform, I need to be doing stories. I need to be talking to the people who are following me. And sometimes That's a huge conflict. It's a huge conflict. What I loved about TV was like, I went to work, I did my thing. I said what I needed to say. I was like very happy. And then I could go home and just be me. There was much more of a line between mm-hmm. personal and private and a public persona. That line is gone now. And even though we talk about it as authenticity, I think it's cultivated authenticity. We are still showing people what we want them to see. 
not everything. What do you feel like are your biggest sources of shame and what is your biggest fear? I mean, you know, look, I've always had shame around Mm -hmm. my weight issues. Mm -hmm. I've always had shame around, you know, this idea that like when I am in a compulsive eating stage, like when I was dealing with grief, Mm -hmm. um, I'm embarrassed. I have had such social anxiety. I don't want people to see me unless I'm feeling my best, right? Mm -hmm. But that's also where I learned that clothes Mm -hmm. can be very helpful because they can be armor against the world um, if you're not feeling great, but they can also reflect when you do. And in both those cases, I think it has helped me grow a little bit as a person in terms Mm -hmm. of what fear has stopped me from doing or what shame has stopped me from doing. What do you mean exactly by that, though? I would not go to parties. I would get invited and, you know, to things that might have been beneficial for me or might have been wonderful for me to meet new people and create new friendships. And I wouldn't go out of fear. And there's a lot of times... When you were feeling body shamey. Yeah, Yeah. body shamey or like that I didn't have anything to offer, didn't know if I would be interesting enough or didn't know if what I was wearing was like appropriate. You know, all of those things, I can dress anybody except myself Mm -hmm. because I come with my own baggage. I don't look at myself objectively. I look at myself because I know myself, but I can look at other people and I see infinite potential. I see so Mm. much in people that makes me excited, particularly in women. And I wish sometimes that I was better at applying that to myself. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I knock it out of the park, but most of the time I don't. And fear, that's more shame. Fear for me now is not taking risks. Not doing You're afraid things. of not taking risks? No, I'm... Afraid to take risks? I'm af- I, I think that I have a lot of fear based on what's happened in the last three years to kind of jump into something, to really like go for something that I want because I'm so afraid of more disappointment, mm. right? Because the last that's, few years there's been so much. Exactly. There's well, just, then you need to. Right, exactly. So that's, that's exactly my point. Is so what right. would be... Is there like a dream of something that you'd jump into but you're afraid? Well, I'm afraid but I'm doing it anyway. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, I, I'm going to open as an experiment, a pop-up shop. Mm -hmm. Um, and if the experiment goes well, then I think I'm going to open a little shop, a little shop. And what about shame? Do you have any shame around the aging process and like menopause or anything like that? Oh, menopause. Oh my God. Yes. Okay. So I was just going to ask aging in general, I would say, you know, is harder than people, certainly for women than people want to talk about. Like, I do struggle with the fact that my body isn't what it was. And that may be that I can get some of it back once I get back into weightlifting and, you know, that I feel good and strong again. Um, But then there's also the fact that, you know, as you age, your body may change and it may not come back. And it's not as easy to lose weight. And you do get lines and wrinkles. And what I don't understand is why we decided that's bad. The idea that, you know, women who are young are beautiful comes from the fact that that's when they're most fertile, right? Mm-hmm. We, society has gone so mm-hmm. far beyond what biology has. Eventually, I think it will catch up. The ideal uh, age to have a baby just a few years ago, maybe a few decades ago, was um, 19. Now it's 26. The more women put off getting married and put off having children, Eventually, Evolution's just Darwinism will make it easier we to know have babies We know someone who just had one at f- someone who had it at 50. Me too. One of my closest friends just had a baby at 50. It's rare, but it's becoming more and more possible. And that also, I think, is going to level the playing field. But in terms of shame, for me, this menopausal shit is the worst. I mean, I will literally be sitting Why? here talking to you and all of a sudden I will break out in such a sweat that it will look like I took a shower. And when I started to get perimenopausal, which was towards the end of my um, spine rehabilitation, um, my boyfriend at the time was much younger than me. And I did not want to tell him what was going on with me because I was so afraid that that would make me seem unattractive. And now I'm like, fuck you. But at the time... I the sweats that, you thought were going to be unattractive? Just the whole concept of okay. That you were in menopause. Right. That it would somehow be like, I'm a shriveled up old hag, right? That um, I know it has such a negative connotation. So negative. And there's a great book called Moody Bitches, which is written by the most entertaining psychiatrist I have ever read. I'm sorry I can't remember your name right now. But it's about the sleep you're not getting, the sex you're not having, the, lo- the love mm-hmm. you're not making. You know, what happens to women? That's not true. None of it. 
Well, no, it's not none of it. It doesn't it, have to be. It true. doesn't have to be true. It, the book explains what's going on with women, and we get a really rough deal: puberty, pregnancy, perimenopause. None of them are fun. But you know, that's why I hate when people refer to us as the fairer sex, the softer sex. I'm like, we are warriors. We are titans. I mean, it's unbelievable what our bodies go through in our lifetime. Menopause being shameful. I think has much more to do with the way that we've internalized a male gaze than it is about the fact that we are trying to deny menopause. Mm -hmm. We don't find ourselves as attractive to men, right? I mean, that's a very heteronormative Mm -hmm. way to to describe it. But I think that that's basically what it comes from. Men are afraid of death, much more afraid than women. And to watch a woman age is terrifying. It's a mirror that they don't want to look at. It's a mirror that they don't want to look at. So you Mm -hmm. have the 25-year-old midlife crisis, Mm -hmm. right? You get the 25-year-old girlfriend, you get the Porsche, you get the toupee. Right, because you're actually so afraid of your own You take the whatever, the stuff for the erection. Rogaine or, oh right, Viagra. I mean, you know, this is the thing. I see... I see women, I think, for the first time, we always talk about a midlife crisis. We don't really talk about women's midlife crisis. But I, I think we're in the throes of one. And I've always wanted to have a midlife renaissance. But I don't think mm-hmm. that that's possible until you confront the crisis. And what about what about your own experience with like um, not having been, well, have you ever been married? or um, No, I was engaged been, no, yeah. and I, I, it didn't. Didn't you called work it. for me and and not having kids like and is there anything <laughs> with especially the kids thing like with menopause that ha- do you have any feelings about that or no like- in one relationship in my life mm-hmm. um in my late 30s I spent a year trying to get pregnant mm-hmm. and I think that somebody in the universe the universe itself was definitely looking out for me mm-hmm. because I didn't and mm-hmm. it wasn't like I was like you know trying to um check when I was ovulating I'm like if it happens it happens mm-hmm. And I was more devastated that it didn't happen then than I ever was about getting older and mm-hmm. not having the ability necessarily mm-hmm. to be able to carry a child mm-hmm. because the I never really understood the reason for having children. I'm going to be honest. Like, mm-hmm. I just didn't. I, I saw my parents and, you know, I'm like, I don't know if I really want the responsibility of like a child's well-being <laughs> mentally, physically. I don't know if I can do it. So I never really thought that I was going to have kids. Mm -hmm. And when I was in my late 30s, I fell in love in a way that it finally was like this aha moment. I understand why you have children. For me, it was because you love your partner so much that to make another human that has both of you Mm -hmm. is just the most miraculous thing you can do. Mm -hmm. But only that time in my life, which was way before I hit menopause, that I was disappointed. And when I realized that that was a good thing, that it didn't happen, it's never really affected me since. Mm. I don't really consider myself um, to be a woman that is defined by children, by Mm -hmm. being a wife or a mother. I don't want to get married. I could be with somebody the rest of my life. I am absolutely all for commitment, but I don't want the government involved in my marriage. When do you feel the most vulnerable? Well, now's a good time. Yeah. Um, I mean, I love this stuff Mm -hmm. because as I was saying, as I get older, I find the only people that I wind up being in circles with Mm -hmm. are the people that I admire, that I feel like-minded to. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that makes something like this very special. Mm -hmm. But it still takes practice to talk about what I'm feeling and and what my life has been like um, a lot mm-hmm. because for all those years that I thought I was supposed to keep everything a secret and just mm-hmm. like, you know, look like a duck, like unruffled, but total like hell underneath, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. That letting go of that is sometimes very hard. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I, I really, I, I feel like, oh God, may, you know, maybe I did this all wrong. And then I try to push past it. So, mm-hmm. and I also feel vulnerable, I think, when, um, when people ask me about where I am now as opposed to where I was, mm. because that was one stage of my life. This is another. That stage was very public, and, and really, it burnt me out. I don't think I would have had hamstring surgery and then spine surgery if I had taken better care of myself when I was killing myself. 
to work so hard. Mm -hmm. And I did that because I thought it was a very small window of opportunity. I didn't know what not to wear was going to run for 10 seasons. I didn't know that I would get all these commercials. I was so worried if I didn't say yes to everything that I would wind up with nothing. Mm -hmm. And the one thing that I lost was like my, a, a certain kind of, or at least part of my humanity and a reminder to take care of myself so that I can take care of other people. A reminder to, you know, smell the roses mm -hmm. and enjoy life. But not being as much in the public eye is also kind of, in a, in a way, very weird and hard for me. I became used to being an editor, and then I became used to being on-screen talent. Mm -hmm. And now I'm really neither. Mm -hmm. And it's ego, a bizarre like, feeling. Like, I it's ego. Mm -hmm. So here's a perfect example. You're in a reinvention. I mean, I understand. Yes. Yeah. Um, perfect example is I just styled, I spent three months with um, Lin-Manuel Miranda, styling him oh, for his cool. press junket. Yes. He's a wonderful, like amazing genius, um, but a wonderful human. Mm -hmm. And uh, I went with him, I traveled with him uh, for the Mary Poppins Returns press junket. And it was a completely different thing that I have done in a really long time. And I haven't been on a Disney set with Emily Blunt and Lin-Manuel Miranda. I have been the one on the top of the call sheet. Mm -hmm. <laughs> this is like a completely different massive ecosystem mm. compared to my tiny little reality show life. Mm -hmm. But it took me a second to realize like I'm crew. I'm crew. It's not like there's no special attention being paid to me. People aren't asking me if I want a coffee. You know, these are... It's a different dynamic. And I felt ashamed. Mm -hmm. I really did. I thought, oh my God, I, I've taken a step back mm -hmm. in the wrong direction. Mm -hmm. And I really, I, I really struggled with that. Mm -hmm. But in the end, I realized like I'm a stylist whether I'm on camera or off. Mm -hmm. And being able to do that is something that I'm very proud of. Mm -hmm. When do you feel the most beautiful? I feel most beautiful when something excites me or inspires me and it's a light that emanates out of me mm -hmm. there is nothing better than passion and in all of its forms you know and that is when when I'm so involved in something or I'm so involved with someone that I have such a connection that is when I feel my beauty mm. that is when I feel mm. this kind of sense of being indispensable because there's nobody else in the world with all of my cells and all of my molecules who is me there's just nobody else. And that is terrifying and exciting. And, you know, there's always going to be somebody whose genes and molecules and atoms you like better. And then there's going to be somebody who you, you know, are, you're less akin to. But the idea that my interactions are solely mine. And when I am lit up, that is, that is beauty in its purest form. Mm -hmm. I used to, when I was eight years old, I said to my mother, I don't understand the meaning of life. Okay, and she was like, oh God, what, what did I do to have this child? <laughs> An existentialist at eight. And I said, I don't understand the meaning. I don't understand the meaning in life. Like, what is the point if we're all going to die? And she said, Stacy, you have to infuse your life with meaning. It made sense to me at the time. It definitely made sense to me. But as I got older, what really started to preoccupy me was this idea of consciousness. Why do we have consciousness? Why are we the only species that actually know that we're going to die? Why do we live in fear of death? What is the point of this? Why do we have pain, agony, sadness? Why do we have all of these suffer? awful things? Why do we suffer? But somebody gave me an answer that literally, I, I mean, just had me in tears because I thought it was the most beautiful thing I'd ever heard. Because here we are, we always say we're made of stars, right? We're carbon, we're all of the same minerals, chemicals, whatever you want to call it, elements that are in the universe. What if we are the only way the universe can feel itself? Mm. What if everything that we experience is so that the universe can feel every range of emotion, every shade of emotion? And to me, that made the most sense. What does self-acceptance mean to you? Not giving a shit. I mean, truly, just doing whatever the fuck you want. That's mm -hmm. self-acceptance. It is. It's, it's, it is quieting as much fear as you can in your life. It is being determined to get rid of shame that you don't own. There's a great book about that called Healing the Shame That Binds You. I'm sorry, I don't remember the author. That's okay. But it is incredible in the way they talk about the fact that secrets and the idea of keeping secrets is genetic. We can be born with shame that isn't ours. The mm -hmm. more we learn about epigenetics, we understand mm -hmm. that what's going on hormonally with women may affect a fetus. 
all of that stuff to me means you have to unlearn everything you think is true. And by that, I mean, we forget, especially when we're young, that the way we see the world is only our view. Mm -hmm. It's not the truth, right? And so it's just as easy to say, oh, I'm going to look at the world from this perspective and it for, for that to be true. So it's a question of getting outside of yourself enough to be objective about your own biases mm-hmm. and then not giving a fuck about what people think or want or say about you and doing what, what gives you that light, what makes you shine from the inside out. Mm. Thank you. That was Thank so you. incredible. Thank you, guys. Really great. That was amazing. <laughs> Thank you. A huge and heartfelt thank you to Chantal Landre for sponsoring this episode and for their continued belief in the power of radical honesty as a path toward self-acceptance. Chantal Landre listens and adapts to women's needs and fit testing on real women allows them to adjust bras to the millimeter for a perfect fit from A to H cups. Because when you feel comfortable, your inner style and confidence will shine through. For a lingerie that inspires and reflects the inner you, get free shipping on any order with the code STYLE. That's Chantal.com with the coupon code STYLE for free shipping. We hope you are inspired by this episode. Until next week, that's it from me, Elisa. And me, Lily. If you agree that facades separate us and being radically honest brings us together, help spread the movement for radical self-acceptance by sharing this episode, subscribing to our podcast, and joining us on Patreon. Head over to patreon.com slash style like you to support our work and help us build a world where everyone feels comfortable and safe in their own skin. And if you fall in love with each of our guests as much as we do, you can see them in their full self-expression by subscribing to to our YouTube channel and following us on Instagram and Facebook using the handle at style like you. That's the letter U instead of the word U. And check out our book, True Style is What's Underneath, The Self-Acceptance Revolution on Amazon or at a local bookstore near you. We can't skip ahead to a happy ending or live inside a photoshopped image or an Instagram filter. There is no finding oneself when glossing over the truth.